Section 19 of the Book of Sir Marco Polo, The Venetian, Concerning the Kingdoms and Marvels of the East, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Sir Marco Polo, The Venetian, Concerning the Kingdoms and Marvels of the East, Volume 2, by Rusticello da Pisa. Translated by Henry Yule. Book Fourth, Chapters Thirteen to Twenty Two. Chapter Thirteen How Argon was Delivered from Prison. Now it befell that there was a great Tartar baron, a very aged man, who took pity on Argon, saying to himself that they were doing an evil and disloyal deed in keeping their lawful lord a prisoner, wherefore he resolved to do all in his power for his deliverance. So he tarried not but went incontinently to certain other barons and told them his mind, saying that it would be a good deed to deliver Argon and make him their lord, as he was by right. And when the other barons had heard what he had to put before them, then both because they regarded him as one of the wisest men among them, and because what he said was the truth, they all consented to his proposal and said that they would join with all their hearts. So when the barons had assented, Boga, which was he who had set the business going, and with him Elchidai, Togan, Tigana, Tagachar, Ulatai, and Samagar, all those whom I have now named, proceeded to the tent where Argon lay a prisoner. When they had got thither, Boga, who was the leader in the business, spoke first, and to this effect. Good my lord Argon, said he, we are well aware that we have done ill in making you a prisoner and we come to tell you that we desire to return to right and justice. We come therefore to set you free, and to make you our liege lord, as by right you are. Then Boga ceased, and said no more. Chapter 14. How Argon Got the Sovereignty at Last When Argon heard the words of Boga, he took them in truth for an untimely jest, and replied with much bitterness of soul, Good my lord, quoth he, you do ill to mock me thus. Surely it suffices that you have done me so great wrong already, and that you hold me, your lawful lord, here a prisoner and in chains. Ye know well, as I cannot doubt, that you are doing an evil and a wicked thing, so I pray you go your way, and cease to flout me. Good my lord Argon, said Boga, be assured we are not mocking you, but are speaking in sober earnest, and we will swear it on our law. Then all the barons swore fealty to him as their lord, and Argon too swore that he would never reckon it against them that they had taken him prisoner, but would hold them as dear as his father before him had done. And when these oaths had passed, they struck off Argon's fetters and hailed him as their lord. Argon then desired them to shoot a volley of arrows into the tent of the Melek, who had held them prisoners and was in command of the army that he might be slain. At his word they tarried not, but straightway shot a great number of arrows at the tent, and so slew the Melek. When that was done, Argon took the supreme command, and gave his orders as sovereign, and was obeyed by all. And you must know that the name of him who was slain, whom we have called the Melek, was Saldan, and he was the greatest lord after Akamat himself. In this way that you have heard, Argon recovered his authority. Chapter 15. How Akamat was taken prisoner. A messenger breaks in upon Akamat's festivities 
with the news that Soldan was slain, and Argon released and marching to attack him. Akamat escapes to seek shelter with the Sultan of Babylon, i.e. of Egypt, attended by a very small escort. The officer in command of a pass by which he had to go, seeing the state of things, arrests him and carries him to the court, probably Tabriz, where Argon was already arrived. Chapter 16 How Akamat was slain by order of his nephew And so, when the officer of the pass came before Argon, bringing Akamat captive, he was in a great state of exultation, and welcomed his uncle with a malediction, saying that he should have his deserts. And he straightway ordered the army to be assembled before him, and without taking counsel with any one, commanded the prisoner to be put to death, and his body to be destroyed. So the officer appointed to this duty took Akamat away and put him to death, and threw his body where it never was seen again. Chapter 17 How Argon Was Recognized as Sovereign And when Argon had done as you have heard, and remained in possession of the throne and of the royal palace, all the barons of the different provinces, who had been subject to his father Abaga, came and performed homage before him, and obeyed him, as was his due. And after Argon was well established in the sovereignty, he sent Kassan, his son, with thirty thousand horse, to the arbor Sek, I mean to the region so called, to watch the frontier. Thus, then, Argon got back the government. And you must know that Argon began his reign in the year 1286 of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Akamat had reigned two years, and Argon reigned six years, and at the end of those six years he became ill and died, but some say twas of poison. Chapter 18. How Kiakatu Seized the Sovereignty After Argon's Death And immediately on Argon's death, an uncle of his, who was own brother to Abaga his father, seized the throne, as he found it easy to do owing to Kassan's being so far away as the arbor Sek. When Kassan heard of his father's death, he was in great tribulation, and still more when he heard of Kiakatu's seizing the throne. He could not then venture to leave the frontier for fear of his enemies, but he vowed that when time and place should suit, he would go and take as great vengeance as his father had taken on Akamat. And what shall I tell you? Kiakatu continued to rule, and all obeyed him except such as were along with Kassan. Kiakato took the wife of Argon for his own, and was always dallying with women, for he was a great lecher. He held the throne for two years, and at the end of those two years he died, for you must know he was poisoned. Chapter 19 How Baidu Seized the Sovereignty After the Death of Kiakatu When Kiakatu was dead, Baidu, who was his uncle and was a Christian, seized the throne. This was in the year 1294 of Christ's Incarnation. So Baidu held the government, and all obeyed him, except only those who were with Kassan. And when Kassan heard that Kiakatu was dead, and Baidu had seized the throne, he was in great vexation, especially as he had not been able to take his vengeance on Kiakatu. As for Baidu, Kassan swore that he would take such vengeance on him that all the world should speak thereof, and he said to himself that he would tarry no longer, but would go at once against Baidu and make an end of him. So he addressed all his people, and then set out to get possession of his throne. And when Baidu had intelligence thereof, he assembled a great army and got ready, and marched ten days to meet him, and then pitched his camp, and awaited the advance of Kassan to attack him, meanwhile addressing many prayers and exhortations 
to his own people. He had not been halted two days when Kassan with all his followers arrived, and that very day a fierce battle began. But Baidu was not fit to stand long against Kassan, and all the less that soon after the action began, many of his troops abandoned him and took sides with Kassan. Thus Baidu was discomfited and put to death, and Kassan remained victor and master of all. For as soon as he had won the battle and put Baidu to death, he proceeded to the capital and took possession of the government, and all the barons performed homage and obeyed him as their liege lord. Kassan began to reign in the year 1294 of the Incarnation of Christ. Thus, then, you have had the whole history from Abaga to Kassan, and I should tell you that Alao, the conqueror of Baudak, and the brother of the great Khan Kublai, was the progenitor of all those I have mentioned. For he was the father of Abaga, and Abaga was the father of Argon, and Argon was the father of Kassan, who now reigns. Now, as we have told you all about the Tartars of the Levant, we will quit them and go back and tell you more about Great Turkey. But in good sooth, we have told you all about Great Turkey and the history of Kaidu, and there is really no more to tell. So we will go on and tell you of the provinces and nations in the far north. Chapter 20 Concerning King Kanchi, who rules the far north. You must know that in the far north there is a king called Kanchi. He is a Tartar, and all his people are Tartars, and they keep up the regular Tartar religion. A very brutish one it is, but they keep it up just the same as Chinggis Khan and the proper Tartars did, so I will tell you something of it. You must know, then, that they make them a god of felt, and call him Natagai, and they also make him a wife, and then they say that these two divinities are the gods of the earth who protect their cattle and their corn and all their earthly goods. They pray to these figures, and when they are eating a good dinner, they rub the mouths of their gods with the meat, and do many other stupid things. The king is subject to no one, although he is of the imperial lineage of Chinggis Khan, and a near kinsman of the great Khan. This king has neither city nor castle. He and his people live always either in the wide plains or among great mountains and valleys. They subsist on the milk and flesh of their cattle, and have no corn. The king has a vast number of people, but he carries on no war with anybody, and his people live in great tranquillity. They have enormous numbers of cattle, camels, horses, oxen, sheep, and so forth. You find in their country immense bears entirely white, and more than twenty palms in length. There are also large black foxes, wild asses, and abundance of sables, those creatures I mean from the skins of which they make those precious robes that cost one thousand bezants each. There are also vares in abundance, and vast multitudes of the pharaoh's rat, on which the people live all the summer-time. Indeed, they have plenty of all sorts of wild creatures, for the country they inhabit is very wild and trackless. And you must know that this king possesses one tract of country which is quite impassable for horses, for it abounds greatly in lakes and springs, and hence there is so much ice as well as mud and mire that horses cannot travel over it. This difficult country is thirteen days in extent, and at the end of every day's journey there is a post for the lodgment of the couriers who have to cross this tract. At each of these post-houses they keep some forty dogs of great size, in fact not much smaller than donkeys, and these dogs draw the couriers over the day's journey from post-house to post-house, and I will tell you how. You see, the ice and mire are so prevalent 
that over this tract, which lies for those thirteen days' journey in a great valley between two mountains, no horses, as I told you, can travel, nor can any wheeled carriage either. Wherefore they make sledges, which are carriages without wheels, and made so that they can run over the ice, and also over mire and mud without sinking too deep in it. Of these sledges, indeed, there are many in our own country, for tis just such that are used in winter for carrying hay and straw when there have been heavy rains and the country is deep in mire. On such a sledge, then, they lay a bearskin on which the courier sits, and the sledge is drawn by six of those big dogs that I spoke of. The dogs have no driver, but go straight for the next post-house, drawing the sledge famously over ice and mire. The keeper of the post-house, however, also gets on a sledge drawn by dogs, and guides the party by the best and shortest way and when they arrive at the next station they find a new relay of dogs and sledges ready to take them on, whilst the old relay turns back, and thus they accomplish the whole journey across that region, always drawn by dogs. The people who dwell in the valleys and mountains adjoining that tract of thirteen days' journey are great huntsmen, and catch great numbers of precious little beasts, which are sources of great profit to them. Such are the sable, the ermine, the ver, the urculin, the black fox, and many other creatures from the skins of which the most costly furs are prepared. They use traps to take them, from which they can't escape. But in that region the cold is so great that all the dwellings of the people are underground, and underground they always live. There is no more to say on this subject, so I shall proceed to tell you of a region in that quarter in which there is perpetual darkness. Chapter 21. Concerning the Land of Darkness Still further north, and a long way beyond that kingdom of which I have spoken, there is a region which bears the name of darkness, because neither sun, nor moon, nor stars appear. But it is always as dark as with us in the twilight. The people have no king of their own, nor are they subject to any foreigner, and live like beasts. They are dull of understanding, like half-witted persons. The Tartars, however, sometimes visit the country, and they do it in this way. They enter the region riding mares that have foals, and these foals they leave behind. After taking all the plunder that they can get, they find their way back by help of the mares, which are all eager to get back to their foals, and find the way much better than their riders could do. Those people have vast quantities of valuable peltry, thus they have those costly sables of which I spoke, and they have the ermine, the arculin, the ver, the black fox, and many other valuable furs. They are all hunters by trade, and amass amazing quantities of those furs, and the people who are on their borders where the light is, purchase all those furs from them, for the people of the land of darkness carry the furs to the light country for sale, and the merchants who purchase these make great gain thereby, I assure you. The people of this region are tall and shapely, but very pale and colorless. One end of the country borders upon Great Russia, and as there is no more to be said about it, I will now proceed, and first I will tell you about the province of Russia. Chapter 22. Description of Russia and its people. Province of Lak. Russia is a very great province lying towards the north. The people are Christians and follow the Greek doctrine. There are several kings in the country, and they have a language of their own. They are a people of simple manners, but both men and women very handsome, being all very white and tall with long fair hair. There are many strong defiles and passes in the country, 
and they pay tribute to nobody except to a certain Tartar king of the Ponent, whose name is Toktai. To him, indeed, they pay tribute, but only a trifle. It is not a land of trade, though to be sure they have many fine and valuable furs, such as sables in abundance, and ermine, there, ercolin, and foxskins, the largest and finest in the world, and also much wax. They also possess many silver mines, from which they derive a large amount of silver. There is nothing else worth mentioning, so let us leave Russia, and I will tell you about the Great Sea, and what provinces and nations lie round about it, all in detail, and we will begin with Constantinople. First, however, I should tell you of a province that lies between north and northwest. You see, in that region that I have been speaking of, there is a province called Lak, which is conterminous with Russia, and has a king of its own. The people are partly Christians and partly Saracens. They have abundance of furs of good quality, which merchants export to many countries. They live by trade and handicrafts. There is nothing more worth mentioning, so I will speak of other subjects. But there is one thing more to tell you about Russia that I had forgotten. You see, in Russia there is the greatest cold that is to be found anywhere, so great as to be scarcely bearable. The country is so great that it reaches even to the shores of the ocean sea, and tis in that sea that there are certain islands in which are produced numbers of gerfalcons and peregrine falcons, which are carried in many directions. From Russia also to Oroich it is not very far, and the journey could be soon made were it not for the tremendous cold, but this renders its accomplishment almost impossible. Now then let us speak of the great sea, as I was about to do. To be sure, many merchants and others have been there, but still there are many again who know nothing about it, so it will be well to include it in our book. We will do so then, and let us begin first with the Strait of Constantinople. End of section 19. Recording by Karen.